Hello, America. If you're looking for a roadmap to financial health and smart investing, remember, money meets at the intersection of Mulholland and Cooperstock. After your family and your health, your money, your investments should be number three on your life top 10 list. I am Mark Cooperstock, and along with my partner, Stephen Mulholland, a CFA charter holder and CFP, are the principals of Mulholland and Cooperstock Asset Management. Our firm is a registered investment advisor with offices in San Diego and Summerlin, Nevada, with only one goal in mind, to provide meaningful, thoughtful, and tax-efficient advice. We provide investment and generational wealth management guidance while keeping a sharp eye on the economy and the markets. So come along, join us on this journey as we look to help you navigate the superhighway of financial news and global markets amidst the daily traffic of forecasts, speculators, and prognostications. You have arrived. Remember, money meets at the intersection of Mulholland and Cooperstock. Now let's welcome my partner, Stephen Mulholland. Stephen, where will we go today? Thanks for the intro, Mark. We are welcoming a friend of the podcast and the firm guest, Aviram Benito. Hi, Aviram, how are you? Good morning, guys. Happy to be on the show today. Um, excited for what we have in store. Excellent. Thank you for joining us, Aviram. And some of our listeners will know you personally. But for those do not, who do not, Aviram is a certified public accountant. He founded ABN Associates in June of 2020. Uh, ABN Associates is a boutique accounting firm located in Woodland Hills, California, that offers full-service business consulting, accounting, and tax services for small to mid-sized businesses. Aviram, in our experience, has delivered on the mission he purports on his website, which is to provide outstanding service with a focus on client growth and development. Aviram, I was looking at your background and um, the thing that was most interesting to me was your five and a half years as a security agent for LL uh, Airlines. And um, I have a funny story about that. Um, the I interned a guy uh, in New York City uh, who did a great job, uh, by the way, as a security analyst. So I gave him the, the legendary uh, Benjamin Graham book on how to analyze stocks and bonds or what we call securities. He flew to Israel from New York with a book called Security Analysis, and he got picked out of the line and had a special interview because they wanted to know why this early 20-year-old kid was studying, quote unquote, security analysis. Oh, my God. That's funny. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So he, he had to quickly explain it's the book that inspired Warren Buffett to uh, go into uh, uh, make a career in the financial markets. Eventually, everything was OK. But um, yeah, may, maybe maybe uh, maybe maybe the wrong gift. <laughs> Maybe the wrong gift. The wrong gift or the wrong the wrong airline to travel with that gift. <laughs> no, no, I, I think it's kind of nice. It, it, at least we know that somebody's paying attention, right? That's okay. Exactly. So, so Abiram, you worked at um, you worked at big accounting firms, uh, big tax firms, and then you founded your own firm. Uh, tell us a little bit about uh, why you went the more entrepreneurial. Uh, certainly, we understand. But tell us why you went the entrepreneurial right, uh, route and decided to start your own firm. Um, so my journey is right after school, I started my career at Con Resnick, what's known as Con Resnick today. Um, it was 
too large. At the time, I think it was the ninth largest accounting firm in the nation. Bureaucracy, red tape, everything was um, challenging. I was very close to the partner at the time. And the stories that I heard um, really directed me to a more independent entrepreneurial um, route. I left. Um, I wanted to focus more on, on real estate. I wanted to really develop the rapport and the connection with my clients. Um, I spent a couple of years in uh, local firms here in LA until, don't ask me why, during the pandemic uh, 2020, I decided to uh, jump, jump the ship and, and start to swim on my own. Um, and it was the best decision. Uh, I feel very fortunate. Um, in a short period of time, we were able to develop a team of eight people today. Um, like you mentioned earlier, really focusing on value, adding exceptional service, really create that connection. We would like to consider ourselves um, partners to our clients. We want to be that phone call that you make before you pull the trigger on any kind of significant transaction. Um, and to be that consultant and really be able to drive the tax piece of the tax component of every decision a business uh, owner can make and what the impact will be. I think that uh, based on our experience, um, business owners who take that tax piece into consideration um, benefit from it in the long run in a, in a great way. And we, we value that we want to educate our clients to be able to make decisions with the tax implication and the accounting implication in mind. Um, perfectly, perfectly said. And um, the one personal question, if you don't mind, if I ask, did was COVID uh, what got you to jump off the ship and start swimming or was COVID an obstacle you quickly encountered as you started swimming? You know what? Um, I think in a, in a funny way, both, because it was so much uncertainty in every aspect of your life at the time. And I decided to like to take the leap of faith and, and take it as an opportunity. Um, I think the fact that we're all remote, I wanted to start the firm with a foundation of remote. I feel fortunate um, because we have employees in four states combined with California. Um, so I feel we're able to reach much larger pool of talented accountants um, and to build the firm from a technological standpoint that it's all remote. I feel like many accounting firms had those challenges early on during the pandemic, and it was really hard to make the transition from a all in-house to remote from a, from a client relationship aspect and operational internally. Um, so I think that the, the way the firm is structured today, um, we are way ahead of the curve and the, from a technologic standpoint, very advanced and I think it helps a lot um, to serve our clients and to run the day-to-day -day operation of, of the firm. 
Yeah, I mean, sense. I'll jump in here. I mean, we, I think Steve and I, you know, we started our firm prior to COVID, but COVID actually was, I don't want to say beneficial because that sounds really, really terrible to say. Um, but we, we found that as the world changed and the world went inside, right? It was conversations were easier to have, conversations were easier to schedule with people. Um, you know, prior to COVID, there was a certain sect that looked kind of looked down their nose at people that work from home. Now, now it's it's you you talk to everybody, everybody works from home, right? It's it's rare that people are going have gone back full time, right? Unless maybe you work for Elon Musk and he's insisting upon it at Twitter, which which we right. don't. Um but yeah, it it is absolutely fully 100% accepted. This is the way business can be done today and going forward. And I personally don't see any change in that. Um, absolutely, no. I feel I feel lucky and fortunate um, that that we can reach so many people, both from the client perspective and uh, the employees. It's definitely a benefit. Well, well said, and um, uh, uh, Aviram, you mentioned four states. What four states are your staff in? So we have employees in Oregon, in Colorado, and in Michigan, and of course in California. Perfect. Oregon, Colorado, Michigan, and California. Um, stick, sticking with the, uh, the topic of states. Uh, so Mark, during the pandemic, moved from California to Las Vegas. So he doesn't know what these are. Um, but us Californians have to deal with something called state taxes. Um, and, and maybe it's a good segue. Uh, a good amount of our listeners, Aviram, as you would expect, are in California. And something that's certainly top of mind was the rule change in 2008 uh, that capped the tax deduction for state and local taxes at 10,000. Previously, uh, it was unlimited. Um, but there's this thing called AB, is it AB 150, Aviram? Correct. Yes, AB 150. What is AB 150? What's, what, yeah, tell, tell me about AB 150 and what's something Californians can do that to combat the, 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 and Mark, you can, you can take a nap during this part because you don't have state taxes. Uh, <laughs> but we all want to be Mark. We all want to be Mark. But until then, um, we have a little benefit actually. So you, you mentioned um, up until 2018, we could deduct 100% of our state income tax and property tax on Schedule A, which is the itemized deduction on the individual tax return. That was all great. You're making, you're, you're paying um, estimated tax to California. You pay property tax on your house. 100% um, of it was deductible. Trump made some changes to the law. Um, some were more beneficial to taxpayers and some were not. Um, so part of the, the, the law, part of the code that was taking away is the ability to deduct the state income tax and property tax. And it was capped at $10,000. So we've seen many taxpayers who had to leave significant amount of deductions on the table. They could not deduct it any longer. Um, when Biden came in office, he wanted to change the law and, and make it easier and, and be for taxpayers in California 
and states with high income tax and high property tax to be able to still take those expenses as deductions. So what they did, they basically passed a law that gave each state some flexibility. What California did passing AB 150, basically what we call it a SALT workaround, SALT state, state and local tax. Um, it's the workaround, which if you have a business, if you have a flow through business, um, S Corporation Partnerships LLC, you can make an election on the entity level. So let's take, for example, we have an S Corporation. Um, I'm an electrician. I have a net income of $100,000 over the course of the year. Um, I have the ability to make a payment on, the, on my S Corp level. Um, the payment will be 9.3% of my net income. So in our situation, $9,300. That payment will be deductible on the federal tax return. So I will reduce my taxable income on the federal level. So if prior to 2018, I could deduct it on my individual tax return, on my federal individual tax return, now, because I can no longer do it, if I will make the payment from my S corporation, I will be able to deduct it on the federal S corporation tax return. So the $9,300, 9.3% of my net income. And that payment will be treated as a credit and it will go towards my estimated tax payment to California. So basically, Best of both worlds, I will be able to take the deduction on the federal level and it will be treated as estimated payment. Not taking advantage of this law, you will continue to make payments to California, but those payments will not be deductible. Unfortunately, we are two years in, we still see returns that um, taxpayers don't take advantage um, of this law. There are some restrictions and some nuances that need to be dealt with, but on an overall basis, majority of taxpayers, definitely small taxpayers with um, S corporations or couple partners uh, on a partnership can definitely and should definitely consider taking advantage of this, um, of this benefit. That, that's very helpful, uh, Aviram. Mark, follow-up questions from that uh, vicariously for us Californians? Yeah, so I'm just curious. So you, you said you're surprised you you still see returns um, where people are not taking advantage of this. Like what what would you estimate? Like 50% of, of the people aren't taking advantage of this? Are, are there any statistics on it? I mean, 25%? Um, I, I won't be able to really share statistics. I've just, I, I see returns sometimes. Uh, prospective clients or, or friends and colleagues in, in discussions, um, did you take advantage of uh, AB 150? And some are just hesitant, some, no, I was considering it, but it wasn't worth it. Um, it's very rare that it will not be beneficial. Um, and I highly encourage every taxpayer to seriously have a discussion with their 
tax practitioner and, and consider, it should be a really great um, excuse not to do it. Yeah. No, I, 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 uh, no, I agree with you. I mean, the fact that there are people out there, and clearly there are, that, that don't, aren't aware of it or they're not being shown, um, uh, you know, is, is disturbing. That, that gives rise actually to another question. And um, look, we, we, you know, full disclosure, we've known you for a number of years. We've referred some clients to you, right? Um, we're, you know, they're very happy. We're very happy that they're getting the level of service that, that you are known for. Um, we, you know, Love we don't share, right? We, I mean, there's no finder fees. Like we do this because we want our clients just to have the best experience and have, you know, available to them, right? That's the only reason we do it. We have no other, we, we, we have nothing else in, in the race or, or, or at stake. Um, but we have a number of clients who, and, and it's, it amazes us, <laughs> uh, who over the years, the number of people that we talk to who don't work with CPAs um, in, in, uh, as, as their tax advisor, right? And, you know, perhaps you could just discuss a little bit like the differences between like what an, what an enrolled agent is um, and, and a CPA. And, and the reason we bring this up is we have, as I said, a number of clients who are high earners and very high, very high, the top level brackets um, who work with enrolled agents. And, and we think they're leaving a lot of money on the table by not, you know, working with a CPA, not getting the best advice. Um, we have some very scary so stories we could share at a later time, but why not today? But if you could comment on, on the differential there. Sure. So as you mentioned, there are two different certification. Um, so maybe a step back. In order to prepare a, a significant amount of returns, you have to be approved by the IRS and the government to do so. Um, as you can imagine, you need a license to do uh, most things in, in the US, rightfully. Um, so the difference between EA and, and CPA, enrolled agent and certified public accountant is different certification. Um, it's known that CPA, it's more intense, more involved, um, different path uh, that required some um, very intense uh, testing and you need to have a degree, um, a bachelor's degree in accounting uh, or at least complete 24 units of accounting classes. Um, EA, however, um, you, there, it's a program with the IRS, still you need to take some classes, still you need to take a few exams, still require work and, and uh, professionalism and ethics and all the what required from a certified public accounting. However, it's considered to be less invasive. Um, in addition, enrolled agent, the certification is very much focused on taxes while for certified public accountant, it's more broad, more accounting, economics, and, and other areas that give you a little bit more depth of, of accounting in addition to taxation. Um, I will be completely honest with you. I know several enrolled agents that are excellent, really wonderful accountants, very knowledgeable, very experienced that will produce and provide their clients with excellent 
service and product. Um, and on the flip side, I know some CPAs that are not doing great job. So I cannot tell you as a rule of thumb, CPAs are better than EAs. Um, each one should really evaluate and, and give the benefit of the doubt, but always kind of keep an eye on, on a CPA and on an on enrolled agent and make sure that the professional that they chose is really um, has the qualification and, and the ability to provide them with the service that they deserve. And that's very, uh, very uh, well said and very fair, Abiram. How do you think having the CPA, going through the CPA process and successfully completing that program and getting the credential, how do you think it helps you um, in the advice you give to clients in your career? Um, look, it's, it's, it's an everyday thing. Um, I've been doing it for 15, almost 16 years. Um, at the end of the day, it's all about experience. It's every tax season, every tax return you prepare, every case you're involved with, it's another building block. It's another step to expose yourself and get more familiar and go more in depth in a different area. Um, I think the tax code is complex and sophisticated that no one can be 100% proficient on all areas of the code. Um, I think when you, when, when you are a taxpayer and you evaluate who to go with as your accountant, um, CPA, EA, you need to really understand what questions you need to ask. You need to know what you're looking for in order to make sure that this is the right person for you that will give you uh, the benefit and, and the, the service that you're looking for. Um, I feel like, and I will tell you, when I went through the, the process and, and my um, going to school and, and get my certification, I was not aware that there is a different option, that EA is even an option. For me, it was just going the CPA route, um, which is the, the highest kind of level, the most complex level to, to become uh, an accountant. Um, I actually started an audit that without the certification, uh, you cannot advance and you cannot become a manager or a partner. Um, I spent my first two years um, in the audit department, gave me a lot of, um, a much better understanding and, and the foundation of being an accountant before you, move on to become a great tax accountant. So really understand the debits and the credits um, before you can give a tax advice. So that was my kind of career and, and path to become a CPA. Um, and, and I feel like there is a lot to, to know, a lot to learn, a lot to understand in order to really be able to um, address each situation and be able at the end of the day to give your client the best advice to minimize taxes while of course work within uh, the law and work within the perimeter that the IRS um, gave us as professionals to uh, prepare tax returns. You know, just like you know, really any profession, right? Whether it's the investment management side, it's the tax side, your CPA, you know, choosing a doctor, right? 
it, it's really, it, the onus is really on the individual to do their homework, right? You just don't pick the first name that comes up on a Google search. You don't pick the first name, you know, that comes up uh, on, a, on a listing in, in Los Angeles magazine. Um, you really have to, you know, look into the background of the individual or the team and then have a conversation with them, right? Because you have to be comfortable as well, right? If, if, it, if it's a personality conflict, it's never going to work, right? So, you know, to all our clients and listeners out there, you know, this is, you know, as we talk about it's your money, um, you know, you know, we can't, everything can't be done for you. And don't assume just because someone's name pops up first on a list that they must be the best and they're perfect. Um, it's really, it's really on you to do, do a certain amount of your own due diligence and homework, right? Absolutely. And, and I can give you guys a lot of credit because I'm, I'm, I work with a lot of other advisors um, that they don't have that tax implication component to their practice and they focus on what they know and they will go ahead and advise their clients to, um, to do a certain transactions with and, and the client is not aware of the tax implication. And then there is a big surprise at the end of the year. I'm like, huh, why he told me to do it? And, or the advisor is not aware of some other capital gains or other components of the tax return that might interfere or impact their strategy in some way. And then it, it's a chaos and it's a surprise to the taxpayer at the end of the year. I give you guys a lot of credit and respect you because you do advise your clients and you do care about it. At the end of the day, it, it's a big component. If, if your tax bill uh, at the end of the year can get to 35, 40%, this is really significant and material. And, and clients should be aware of what does it mean at the end of the year and how, what, what will be the implications? Be 100%, 100%. Steve, did you wanna did you wanna talk about? We were talking the other day about the the just to kind of switch gears here for a minute. Um, your your mom built an ADU right on her property, and were there some 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 tax questions and things that came up along the way? Sure, I want to get to Abiram's real estate experience and the ADU is a good segue. But before we do, just before we leave California, uh, Abiram, uh, twenty twenty two was a strange year. Uh, there were there were a lot of fires in California, also a lot of rain. Um, California uh, granted. Uh, can you talk a little bit, Aviram, um, about the automatic extension and the waiver of having to pay uh, to, to to make payments in order to get an extension? I have um, everyone always says they have a friend when they're talking about themselves uh, when they ask questions <laughs> like this, but but I. I really do have a friend who, who called me and asked uh, me to ask this question. So I want to make sure to get it on the podcast um, and I'll send him this podcast when we're done. But his question, Aviram, was, um, hey, uh, he, he, he took an extension and he, want, he didn't make his estimated payment and he wanted to make sure that was OK. Can you um, can you talk about that? Absolutely. Um... As sad and unfortunate, um, some Californians suffered from some loss um, and, and damages this year. Um, and as a result of that, 
the government and the IRS granted an automatic extension to several states that suffer some uh, severe conditions this year. Um, as part of that automatic extension, um, they granted, so there is the physical extension, which is another misconception that I will touch on for a second. When you file an extension, the, ex the extension is to file, to physically file the report, to physically file the tax return. It's not an extension to pay the tax. So that's one misconception that I want to clear up. Um, now, but this year specifically, the extension was A, to extend the filing of the return. So you don't have to file anything physically with the IRS um, in order to extend the filing from April 15 to October 15 for individual returns. Um, there is an automatic extension for entities as well from uh, March 15 to September 15. So that was granted automatically across the board. Um, initially, it was vast majority of counties in California with the exception of three. Um, I heard that later on, they added those counties as well. Um, I wanna add one, one piece of information that some um, taxpayers potentially missed. Even if you're, if you're not in an area that was affected, but your accountant, your CPA, your EA is in an area that was declared as um, granted the automatic extension and your data is saved with them, you can, you can enjoy that automatic extension as well. So it's one uh, piece of information that it's important to know. Now, so, Adam, in addition, yes. So, no, and just to, just to, uh, this is very helpful so far, but just to hit the nail right square on the head uh, with the hammer, uh, for someone living in Orange County, California, for example, they got an automatic extension on both filing and payment. Is that correct? Correct. Perfect. And sorry, I, I just wanted to <laughs> get my no. Yes, no, no, no. So just to make it to make it hundred percent clear, like I said, most counties in California were granted the automatic extension. Later on, they added a few more. I believe at this point, hundred percent of counties in California are covered under the automatic extension. What I just mentioned that even if you live in London and you have to file a California return. Um, for some reason, and your accountant is in Woodland Hills, and your data is with your accountants, you are granted an automatic extension as well. And for that, um, that involved our partner, Mark, here, who lives in Nevada. Exactly. If Mark, if you need to file a California return, that um, and, and your, your data and your accountant is in California, that will apply to you as well. Now, we talked about the report itself to, to file the extension to file the report. The more significant impact on the taxpayer is the ability to defer the timing of the payment. So Q4 of 2022, extension payment 2022, Q1, two and three of 2023, 
and I will repeat it in a second. All those payments were pushed to October 16, 2023. Again, Q4 2022, extension payment 2022, Q1, 2, and 3, 2023. All pushed to October 16, 2023. So what we've been suggesting clients to do, obviously, don't go to visit Mark in Vegas and, and uh, <laughs> spend the money. Um, put it in a CD, put it somewhere safe, give it to Mark and Steven to do their magic, but know that in six months, you will have to pay the tax, but you don't have to separate from the money. Now, let it work for you. Um, put it aside and make sure that by October 15, you make all these um, back payments. Well, it's okay if they bring. It's okay if they bring some pocket. It's okay if they bring some pocket change and come to Las Vegas and gamble <laughs> and lose it, because that's what helps me maintain uh, no state income tax because of the tourism exactly. and gambling here. But that's just a little commercial for Nevada. Yeah. But sorry. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so was it clear in terms of what what's being extended? A perfect. That was perfect, Abiram. So, um, from the automatic California extensions uh, uh, on A filing and B payment on the salt workaround, we're 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 rounding first and heading for home, approaching a uh, drop the mic moment as far as tax podcasts go. You've you've offered a lot of good wisdom. Um, we are um, we're getting out there in time, but we do also want to talk about what my partner Mark mentioned earlier, ADUs, and a segue to now leaving California behind or leaving state issues as, as well covered. So thanks for all the helpful info so far. Let's talk about real estate for the remainder of the podcast, let you talk about one of your specialties, and then we'll we'll wrap it up. But the um, before we get to ADUs, Abiram, something uh, you've mentioned before, and I think something that confuses a lot of people is this notion of passive income. Um, can you talk a little bit about the difference between passive income and expenses and ordinary income? And then we can filter that to what Mark mentioned before, which is the most important thing, uh, questions that help my mom in managing her ADU. So maybe talk a little about passive versus ordinary income? Sure. Um, <clears throat> so the tax code offers two categories or two buckets of income. We have ordinary, which is what we ordinarily do. You wake up in the morning, you have coffee, you leave the house, you go to your day job, you get a W-2 pay. This is ordinary income. You have a small uh, construction business, um, you, you do electrical work, this is your ordinary income. If you have an S corporation, so you get a W-2 from your S corporation and you get a K-1. If you materially involved with the business, this is considered ordinary income to you. On the other side, we have what's called passive income. Passive, by its name, you, you understand that you're not materially involved with the business. And in the eyes of the IRS, rental, by definition, is passive. If you bought um, a single family home 
in Samuel in Nevada and you're renting it out, you're not materially participating with that activity. Other than maybe show up once a quarter, you get the rent pay electronically, hopefully. Um, you have every once in a while some repairs that you need to call uh, an air conditioning guy to come and fix the air condition. Other than that, the activity itself, it's almost on autopilot. And in the eyes of the IRS, that activity is passive. And passive should not be mixed with ordinary. Now, what we know um, that there is a big benefit for real estate operators and rental owners that they can take depreciation. Depreciation is you take the value of the property and you can depreciate a piece of it over an extended period of time. Um, in our example, if it's a residential, it's 27 and a half years. Now, in most cases, when people own and operate a rental business and they take depreciation, in many cases, depreciation pushes them to um, operate a loss. The, the challenge is that you cannot, because of the two separate buckets that we mentioned before, you cannot take the loss from your rental activity and offset your W-2 from your day job. So what happened is that your passive losses from the rental activity will be carried forward until you have rental income or until you dispose the activity, meaning selling the rental property. So this is something that um, I want the, the listener to, to keep in mind because people think that, oh, I will just buy real estate, I will generate losses, and that will offset my income. And then when it comes time to prepare the tax return, oh, what do you mean I have $40,000 of carryover losses? I want to take it this year. Sorry, we have to, we have to wait. So um, with the appropriate planning, um, you can maybe mitigate some of that risk, but for the most part, um, my best suggestion will be to just accumulate more and more real estate until you change your status and you're a, a real estate operator. And then um, the passive activity can be treated as ordinary, but that's a topic for a different discussion, real estate professional. Um, so there are ways to, to mitigate some of the risk, but for the most part, depreciation, um, if it will push you to a loss, and, and it doesn't have to be depreciation, for if for any reason you operate your rental activity at a loss, it will be suspended and pushed forward until you have income in future years. Um, you mentioned the ADU and um, few things come to mind when I deal with clients with ADU. Um, one thing that you have to keep in mind, um, ADU is a separate separate uh, property. It, it, if you rent it for long-term, it will be treated as any other rental property mm. that, you, that you own and operate. So all the things that we just discussed about depreciation and losses and passive will apply. Um, 
keep in mind that the, the depreciation will reduce your basis and there will be a recapture at the time that you will dispose of that activity. Recapture is probably a topic, uh, a, a more intense topic uh, for a different time, but uh, in general, you get a benefit when you take depreciation, you get a, a benefit in an ordinary rate. So when you sell the activity and it reduces your basis. So when you sell the activity, the IRS instructs us that we have to recoup those losses and it will be taxed in a higher rate than capital gain at 25% rate. So this is just something to keep in mind um, while we're reducing our basis by taking depreciation, when we sell the activity, we'll have to recapture on those losses. Um, let's talk for a second about short-term rental that we see with ADU. And um, Adiram, uh, for, yes. first off, uh, no, this is helpful so far. First off, uh, thank you for pre-agreeing to uh, podcast number two with Avi Ram becoming a real estate <laughs> professional. So that's that's wonderful. Uh, we've already got several of the points and questions. Um, but and, and just to make the example uh, very real for our listeners, uh, sorry, Mark, are you trying to say something? No. no. Oh, okay, perfect. I think I picked up an echo. Apologies, but the um, Avi Ram to make this real for our listeners and to go where you're heading. So my mom built the ADU with the wonderful idea of letting my uh, 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 my brother, her other son, visit from New York with his family, let my wife and I come up the coast and use it in the summer. So her plan is family gets to use it, especially in the summertime, and then she'll either rent it out on Airbnb or v VRBO. If she can get someone, her, her quote unquote long term would be nine months that's not summer. But effectively, it would be that would be the normal mix is maybe maybe personal three to four months and then short term rentals the rest of the year, just to provide a very tangible example as you go into the details. OK, so great. So when it comes to short term rental, the test that we have to 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 do is basically what is the average days that the unit was rented out? And if on average, the unit is rented for seven days or less, the passive, the passive rules don't apply. So it's not considered a passive activity because less than seven days, it means that you are way more involved. And every couple of days you have new tenants mm. and you have to you have to clean it up and you have to change and, and modify and fix it. And so there is a lot more to do as opposed to just put a tenant for nine months. So a great loophole, if you rent your property for short term, um, and let's use the example from before that you generated losses at the end of the year and it can be due to depreciation. So those losses will not be suspended as in our previous example because you the passive losses don't apply to your situation. You know, so there is a great loophole. If you are doing short term, 
really speak to your advisor and make sure that you have a good record and good log on when your tenants, um, when they started their stay and when they left and make sure if you, if you do have on average less than seven days, you will be in a better situation in case that you generate some losses. And, and um, so that's very interesting in, in, in a given year, if let's say you had a tech worker in San Francisco and they said, hey, I want to rent it for the entire month. If you had one tenant in one year who went more than seven days, then that would be treated as passive for that tax year. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. Very, very interesting. Okay. So there is, okay. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Gentlemen, that, that was, I think that, that was really interesting. Um, and I think there's going to be uh, a demand for a sequel to the Aviram uh, joining on our podcast. Uh, Aviram, thank you very, very much. We, we appreciate all the information uh, you imparted. And I know our listeners are uh, interested in, in hearing about you and learning about you. Uh, do you want, would you like to provide your email address or web address if people want, of course, people can contact us and we're happy to put them in touch with you, but do you want to provide your email address or contact information? Absolutely. Um, the name of the firm is AB and Associates. Um, the website is abcpasco.com and my email is AB at abcpasco.com. Perfect. Thank you. And of course, anybody can reach out to us. Uh, and we'd be happy to pass along that information uh, as well. Um, the opinions uh, expressed on this podcast are those of the hosts and their guests. Uh, nothing discussed today should be considered investment advice. And please consult with your own financial advisor and tax advisor, how appropriate, whenever considering any type of investment. If you have questions and you're one of our clients, please email us with the term podcast in the subject line. For more information about this podcast, the hosts and our firm, please visit us at www.mk-am.com or email us at info at mk-am.com. Thank you for joining us and look and listen for our next podcast release in the very near future. Thank you.